Grace saves us, and it's through faith. Because when we say, God, yes, God takes the blood of Jesus and applies it to us. Just like the Passover sacrifice, the blood was applied to the doorpost with hyssop. Hyssop is a symbol of faith. Because faith is the means that God's sacrifice is applied to our lives. And when you take the blood of Christ and you apply it to us, we get cleansed. Most people cringe at the thought of blood. Maybe you think of bloodshed at first, but blood is also life. As Pastor Daniel teaches from the book of Exodus, we'll hear about the meeting and necessity of the blood sacrifice as Moses received the commandments from God. Not only was his covenant between himself and the children of Israel, but a promise to us as well. As we consider ourselves as a living sacrifice, our perspective changes. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part two of his message entitled, Affirmation. Verse six, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord had said, we will do. And be obedient. Notice, this covenant is twice affirmed. First time Moses told them, they said, we'll do it. Then he goes and he writes it all down. And he reads it to them. And then they say, yes, we'll do it and we'll be obedient. I think there's an important point here. That culture was not a literary culture. It was an oral culture. Most people didn't read, yet God still put it in a book. And I like that about the Lord. That is why here at Crossroads, and I believe in all of the churches that are profoundly passionate about God, God put it in a book. He put it in a book. He wanted to have a very real, very tangible representation. See, and let's be honest. When we write something down, it has some power, doesn't it? When you sit down and you own it and you say, you know, like how many of you journal and you have to write down those really hard things about the garbage in your heart? It's one thing to see like, yeah, man, I'm really struggling. And you're real general. And then you go sit down, you write it down. And then it's there on a piece of paper and you got to look at it. You're like, yeah, ooh. You know, it looks worse on paper, right? Because it's tangible. It's concrete. It's unadjustable. It's unadjustable. So Moses told him, he said, yeah. And then Moses went and wrote it down. He read and they said, yeah, we'll do it. And brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we take God's word seriously. And listen, I know there's some of you in here, you went to to college, you're just hearing this thing, oh, you can't trust the Bible, it's unreliable. I want to reason with the skeptics in here. And I reason with you as a fellow skeptic. I've always said, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up believing the Bible. I didn't have parents who said, listen, the Bible is the word of God and it's inerrant and it's infallible. It's the only rule for life and faith. And you just believe it. I grew up believing it. No, 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 no. That was not my experience at all. I was like the classic. I never read it, but I know it's not true. 
And I know that the Bible's wrong. And I had all those little proof texts that people throw out there to show, oh, the Bible's so absurd. You know, and you don't know anything except these few verses that you, I mean, now you just Google them. But back in the day, someone just told you, oh, it says that if you curse your parents, you should be stoned. You know, and like, oh, look how absurd it is. Never, there's no depth to it. There's no thoughtfulness to it as if God is on the surface. I'm here to tell you this. Unless you do not believe that any book that you are reading at any time, whether it's the newspaper, People magazine, unless you're willing to say that that isn't really what those authors wrote, the Bible is absolutely reliable. There's so many manuscripts. Literary criticism has been very good to the Bible. Don't miss that. Classic enlightenment. We're going to disprove everything about God. Literary criticism has actually strengthened the case in the veracity of the Bible. Go to any classics department. Seriously, at any university and ask them, is the Bible, is it a reliable document of antiquity? Now, in a classics department, they're not concerned with the theology. They're concerned with documents of antiquity. See, if you go to a sociology department or a religion department, they're concerned with theology. But a classics department is only concerned with documents of antiquity. So if you remove the theological component from it, is this a reliable document of antiquity? Bar none. Four times more. Four times more ancient manuscripts than the next most manuscripts, which is Homer's The Iliad. And I've never once heard someone say, Homer didn't really write The Iliad that way. Not one time. And the Bible's got four times as many manuscripts. It's funny, though, but everyone, oh, you can't really trust the Bible. There's four times. There's over 1,500 manuscripts. So this book that God has given us from Genesis to Revelation, what we call the Old and the New Testament, very reliable. Very reliable. And you say, oh, but there are some Disputed verses, you take out those 33 disputed verses, not one of them is a necessary verse for any core doctrine of Christianity. Not one of them. You can take them all out. You can dismiss them all. You still have classic Christianity right there without those 33 verses. And you would say, oh, well then, how can it be God's word? If there's disputed verses, well, let me, let's do a reality check. These people were persecuted. It wasn't like, we're in an ivy tower theological school and we're copying things like in the children of Israel's day where they had scribes and their only job was copying stuff down. These people were being persecuted first by the Jewish people, then by the Romans. If they got found with these documents, they lost their lives. They weren't meeting in beautiful churches with signs on the road saying, hey, come and worship with us. They were worshiping underground for fear of their lives. This wasn't like a, a well-funded operation. People who were fishermen were writing these things down, copying them, trying to pass them around. If there wasn't any discrepancies, they would say that that proves that the, the documents aren't reliable. See, when someone wants to disprove the theology of the Bible, they'll use anything. But actually, for documents of antiquity, if there is no at all confusion, they say, well, back in the day, they didn't have the printing press. They couldn't give you, like today, when you get a book, every single book looks exactly the same. It wasn't like that. It was dip, scratch, dip, scratch, parchment, smears, all these things. It was an imperfect science back then. So I say all that to talk to the skeptic. Don't cut off your nose to spite your face on the Bible. Do the homework. But listen, if you don't want to change your position on the Bible, then don't do your homework. 
Because if you actually look into the veracity of these documents, you're going to say, there is something different about this book. You will. A lot of people have tried. Trust me, I was one of them. Tried. Failed miserably, but won in failing. Because it's God's word. Don't neglect it. Spend time there. You don't have to read 9,000 chapters every day, but if you do, you'll enjoy it. Just get in the book. Read a psalm. Read the gospels. Get into Paul's writing. Listen, this is my thing. And I, I got to move on from here. I'll be here all night. This is my thing with the Bible. The things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. The first time you read the Bible, there's going to be all sorts of things you don't understand. And guess what? I've been reading the Bible for 15 years. There's all sorts of things I still don't understand. Pastor Bill's been reading the Bible for 55 years. There's all sorts of things he doesn't still understand. Some of you in here, like my sister Ruby, she's been reading the Bible for 90 years. And she tells me that I'm a good teacher. I'm like, that's crazy. Ruby's been reading the Bible for 90 years, but she's saying I'm a good teacher. Because listen, we never arrive spiritually. We believe in Jesus, we're cleansed, and then we're constantly growing. And so as you read through the Gospel of Matthew the first time, you learn a whole bunch of stuff. And as you read through it the 50th time, you learn a whole bunch of stuff. You read through it the 50,000th time, and you're like, I can't believe I ever read this before. I never realized that all this was in there. Why? Because we're constantly growing and God's word is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it goes down to the division of soul and spirit. Where is that division? Only God would know. Of joints and marrow. Where is that division? Only God would know. It's the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts as it says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. So get in that book, man. Just, just dive into it with reckless abandon. If you don't, and if you don't understand something, say, Lord, I don't understand that. But don't get stuck on what you don't understand because God wants to speak to you and he'll meet you right where you are. He'll meet you right where you are. God wanted us to have his word in a book. So there's no denying it. There's no, oh, it was the telephone game and we didn't really hear it all right. And it's changed. It hasn't changed. It's very, very reliable. In lots of different languages. God designed it this way. So don't be afraid of the word of God. My pastor used to always say, when he got his dad's old Bible, when he just first gave his life to Christ, he opened up the cover. And I love this. I put this in Obadiah's Bible when he was born. This book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. And you know what? That's true, isn't it? When we read the word of God, it'll keep us from sin. But when we're choosing rebellion, we don't want to get into the word much, do we? Because at every single page, you're like, oh, man, I am messing up. Man, the word of God will keep us from sin. It's a light to our path. It's a lamp unto our way. It shows us God's heart and God's love. So, brothers, be people of the book. You know, they have that desert island if you can only have five books. You only really need one. It's got 66 books in it. You only need one book. It's got everything you need right in there. Sure, it won't teach you how to make a good shrimp scampi, but that's why I'm around. But it'll teach you all the other good stuff, the stuff that you really need. So, so I like this. It's, this covenant is twice affirmed, once verbally and then once in written form. Now notice also, there's also a blood offering that is involved. Now, when we read this, this is really weird, right? Because what does Moses do? He sets up 
an altar at the foot of the mountain, so back where the people were. He made 12 pillars, one pillar for each of the 12 tribes, symbolically speaking, of the totality of the children of Israel, the totality of the people who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were in Egypt and who were delivered. So all those people, what does he do? He sends out the young men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. We're going to get to burnt offerings and peace offerings in the book of Leviticus. Discussed it. They're just different types of offerings that the children of Israel made. Notice, he took half the blood, he put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So half the blood was used to sanctify or set apart the altars. The other half was put into basins. Why were they put into basins? Because after he read the book of the covenant, what did he do? He sprinkled it on the people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was around at this point, I'd be saying this is really nasty. And let's be honest, it is really nasty. If you said, hey, I'm going to go to this sacrifice and they're going to kill some oxen and then they're going to sprinkle blood on me, we'd all say, that's crazy. What are you doing going there? But why do they do this? Because this is symbolic. Because there's going to be a greater offering that's going to be sacrificed That's going to set apart a people. And that blood of that offering needs to be applied to people. How is the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus applied to you and I? By faith. Faith is the means that applies the sacrifice of Jesus to our life. That's why it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any person boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we'd walk in. See, we're saved by grace, which is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. The way God is, is grace. And because God is gracious, God's grace saves us. And it's through faith. Because when we say God, yes, God takes the blood of Jesus and applies it to us. Just like the Passover sacrifice, the blood was applied to the doorpost with hyssop. Hyssop is a symbol of faith. Because faith is the means that God's sacrifice is applied to our lives. And when you take the blood of Christ and you apply it to us, we get cleansed. Though your sins were a scarlet, you will be made what? White as snow. I've said it a lot. Only in God's color wheel does crimson red sin put with the red blood of Jesus equal white as snow. God's color wheel is weird. It is. Red plus red in God's economy equals white. And there's a lot of those, right? One man plus one woman in marriage. One plus one equals one in God's economy. It's not good for kindergarten, but it is good theology. And you know what's amazing? When you think about what Paul says about the people of God, you take many members, like a room this size, some four or five hundred people gathered together on a Wednesday night, but we're one body. (laughs) That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's the way God rolls with math. He'd flunk out of kindergarten, but we like it just the same. We like it just the same. So this blood sacrifice... It was meant to be a foreshadowing, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the new covenant. He said, in my blood, this new covenant that was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah, in Christ's blood. 
in his blood. So notice verse 8, Moses took the blood, he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord had made with you according to all of these words. So don't miss that. The Mosaic covenant was still a covenant in blood. Now, before we move on, before we move on, I want to make a point because I think it's important because as you're studying the law, it's really easy to think that people got saved by keeping the law of Moses. And guess what? Nobody got saved keeping the law of Moses except for Jesus. And God never intended to save anybody with the keeping of the law of Moses. From Genesis to Revelation, God has always ever had one way of salvation, and that is through belief in his anointed one. Through belief in the anointed one. And before Jesus came, we knew his name was Jesus, and he was from Nazareth, and Mary was his mother, and and Joseph was his, his mother's husband, and all these things. People died hoping for God's mercy, trusting in God's provision, knowing that their good works were filthy rags to God. There's only ever been one way of salvation. Because it's interesting, the church loves that it's saved by grace, but often we want to we wanna meander back towards a works-based system, don't we? I get it all the time. People say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't believe in Jesus, but you need to worship on Saturday, not Sunday, because God doesn't accept that. Or you need to make sure you get baptized with a special saying, or you need to make sure that you only hear the gospel in whatever language they value, or, 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 or. There's a part of us in our humanity that we need to have some skin in the game. And it's, listen, it's a lot easier to affix a couple of rules that we want. It's a lot easier to do that than say, God wants my whole life. And I'm a living sacrifice. My life is his. That's what God really wants. God doesn't want you just to say, okay, I'm going to do it this way. And Because now, I mean, the church, we're recovering our Jewish roots in, in this generation. But you get all sorts of people like, oh, yeah, you know, I keep kosher now. So I can be closer to God. It's like, well, no. Jesus gets you closer to God. You know, or I like to do this thing or that thing or, and don't get me wrong, I, I think it's, it's fun to experience that history. I'm not knocking it, but it has no salvific significance. That's a good one. You guys write that down. No salvific significance. That's a good one. You roll that out tomorrow at work and everyone will be like, okay. Do you have any creamer for the coffee? <laughs> Verse nine. Then Moses went up also. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now, this is interesting because verses 9 to 11 is what would commonly be called a covenantal meal. So very, very symbolic in Near Eastern culture in that day that when two people made a covenant together, that covenant was made with a sacrifice. Remember God and, and Abraham cutting the covenant where they made a sacrifice and they passed in between the two. And then they would sit down and have a ceremonial meal. But what's interesting about this ceremonial meal is that it says that they saw God, but notice they only talk about God's feet and what's under his feet. Because people want to say, oh, I thought no one's seen God at any time. But now it's saying that they saw God. But notice they only describe God's feet. 
And the implication in the Hebrew is that they never lifted up their eyes above what was under God's feet. And they noticed that it was sapphire, which was a deep blue. They said it was like the heavens, the sky. So don't miss that, that when the people of God came to make this and have this covenantal meal with God, they never lifted up their eyes. Why? Because God's so holy and he's so perfect that they weren't like, hey, Lord, what's up? You know, like, like, it's not my homeboy, Jesus. This is different because this is serious. This is the God of all creation, the infinite one of infinite knowledge, having a covenantal meal with finite people who are flawed and they never lift their eyes. And don't get me wrong, all through the Bible you find people who have different experiences of seeing God. Like remember, Moses like, I'll show me your glory. And God's like, look, I'll show you my hind parts. My, God's like, I'll show you my back. And that's in Exodus chapter 33. We'll get there. What's amazing is that Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration saw Jesus' essential glory turned outward. But other than that, no one has seen God in his fullness. No human can except God became a man and walked among us. See, I love the way the Lord works because God wants to be known. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us because God knew that in his totality, we could not handle it. So God humbled himself and became a man. Isn't that what Jesus told Philip? He's like, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Can you imagine Philip being like, "Uh, okay, I mean, what a crazy statement. When you read the gospels, be like, this is what God is like in a human body. Because it's easy to say Jesus is God-like, but it's hard to remember that God is Jesus-like. That the way Jesus lived and moved and carried himself in the world was the way God lives and moves and carries himself in the world. That's exactly what's going on there. But they're having this covenantal meal. That's what's going on here. Now, in verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose, verse 13, and his assistant Joshua And Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now, notice this. God calls Moses up. He says, look, I'm going to give you tablets of stone. So this is, God is going to give him the tablets of the 10 words or the 10 commandments. Those special, those unique of the commandments. Remember, we made the case, and I've said it over and over again, that often people say, oh, there's 10 commandments. No, no. There's only the 10 big commandments that God wrote on tablets with his very finger. Actually, the law has 613 commandments. It's a lot more than just 10. But those 10 are unique because God wrote them with his own finger. And so God tells Moses, look, I want you to come on up, and I'm going to give you these tablets, and I'm going to speak to you, and I want you to talk to the people. Jesus is real. When you're sinning, you don't want to be in the Word. Pastor Daniel emphasized the Word as a light to us, giving us all we need. He also explained the blood offering, 
symbolic of the offering that would set apart people, the blood applied by faith. Giving is one of the central themes in the Bible. Believe it or not, it's the main subject of nearly half of the parables that Jesus taught. Like prayer and serving others, money is an outlet of spiritual power. When it's released into ministry, God does amazing things with it. To understand what it means to be a Christ follower, we must also understand what it means to be a giver. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly supporter of Jesus is Real Radio. For more information, log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Daniel would like to invite you to join him each day on Facebook for his two-minute messages. Pastor Daniel shares from his heart and God's Word in a way that will impact your life. It's the perfect way to inject a little bit of Jesus into your routine. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the two-minute messages. Now, here's Josh with a preview of what Pastor Daniel will be covering in the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when we'll hear how Moses takes care of the people. When Moses goes up the mountain and into the cloud, it's a mysterious event. But as we'll find, God is still mystifying. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series entitled Sinai. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio. Jesus is real. My life is no typical.